Welcome to The Goods, a long-form YouTube podcast where we watch YouTube videos that are at least 15 minutes long and hopefully much longer and then dissect them for your listening pleasure. Hey, Brian, how are you doing this evening? I'm, I'm excited to talk more, more YouTube. As always. What's your favorite YouTube channel, Brian? My favorite YouTube channel? I like to follow this guy called the carpetbagger who his shtick is he is constantly traveling like he is on a vacation every day of the year and he just stops at a different roadside attraction and documents it with his video camera every day what about you dan of course i'm sure long-term against members may know but <laughs> what's your favorite youtube channel right from our extensive previous discussion of of youtube um you know, I would say, having thought about this quite a bit and not just like on the spur of the moment here, I would have to say that it is Scott Bradley's Postmodern Jukebox, where they do modern pop songs in old-timey formats. I think my favorite ever, there's a phenomenal version of Creep by Radiohead, and there's uh, an also outstanding version of My Heart Will Go On that I think you've heard too. I love the doo-wop, My Heart Will Go On. Yeah, it's great. I saw them live once, actually. They have a lot of the performers, and then they have like a little band, and it's really good. It was a great, fun live show. That's awesome. We'll be talking some more about our live audience experiences tonight. Indeed. So we've each picked out a long YouTube video, as is tradition, and we're going to be discussing it on pod. The one I've brought to the table today is 7-27-1978, the hour-long analysis of a Garfield comic by Lasagna Cat. And what have you got for us, Dan? I shared with you a documentary from 1986 called Heavy Metal Parking Lot that is indeed available on YouTube and other free video sharing platforms like Vimeo. And I also brought to the table some discussion of what I call the parking lot extended universe. So this is a documentary created by Jeff Kulik and John Hein or Hain. I'm not sure how you say his name. I think it's probably Hain, H-E-Y-N. Cool. Well, I did get a chance to check that out as well as the sequels. Neil Diamond parking lot from 1996 and Harry Potter parking lot from 1999. And I think we've got some good content to dig into here. It may not take as long as it sometimes does, but such is the freewheeling stream of consciousness style you've come <laughs> to expect here. Don't underestimate my ability to expound upon heavy metal parking lot. Well, of course, the whole spirit of 727... 1978 is that no matter how short the media is the commentary can be spun out ad nauseum so we're going to hit you with a recap of sorts of both of these uh plot is never super essential in things like this but just to give you a bit of the experience if your eyes aren't currently on these videos 
So the form that lasagna cat videos take, they always begin with an actual comic strip from the Garfield series. It's a short, usually three-panel comic that will be acted out in live action. So the, the channel, the enigmatic filmmakers behind it have these... I think intentionally off-putting Garfield, Odie, and John costumes. And they act out the comic strip, which is then followed by an awkward laugh track. And then it will always segue into some kind of creative project inspired by the strip you've just seen. And it takes a different form every time, a different style of art. It might be fully animated or a music video, or there's one where the comic strip is about John spending the night trying out different kinds of shampoo, and then the tribute project is a bukake video where <laughs> sumo wrestlers are spraying the John character with very suggestively shot shampoo. I haven't seen that one. Perhaps our next episode. So my experience with this YouTube channel, Lasagna Cat, is that there's one friend. I try not to mention too many of my friends by name because I never know when it would catch up to them. But this is going to be a tribute. So I'm going to just go ahead and mention him by name. A guy I've known since high school and actually I'm now co-workers with. His name is Hunter. And he, for me, is a guy who, if he makes a recommendation on something... That is a very high piece of praise, and I know I'm going to be in for a treat. He recommended my favorite Twitter feed ever back in the day was Horse Ebooks, which was just this absurdist little bit of micro literature that always made me laugh. He was the one who actually suggested 12 Monkeys to me, and I, I loved that. A lot of the stuff he sends me is weird, and a lot of it is just kind of cool, but he at one point sent me Lasagna Cat. And I clicked through them a couple times. And I think this might have been pre-2017 when there were fewer of the videos. And I watched several of them back in the day. And it was just a blast of weirdness that I enjoyed. But I have not seen the Bukaki one. And I had not seen the one that we're going to discuss tonight prior to earlier today. Yes. Yeah, so something that makes the Lasagna Cat channel pretty unique is... All the videos were uploaded in two huge video dumps. One occurred on January 14th, 2008. So a long time back. Prompting some people looking back now to call it a channel 10 years ahead of its time. And then in early February of 2017, they like dropped a trailer that more videos were coming. A second season. Then on February 23rd, 2017, a huge other batch of videos dropped, of which the pilot for this second season was the one hour long 727-1978. And every video is titled like that because it's the date which that Garfield strip was published. So this 1978 one is very close to the beginning of Garfield being published. As the narrator of the video says, No more than a few months since inception, since 
coming into being. What is your experience with Garfield as a character or a series, Dan? I don't know if this has become obvious in the way that Brian has been talking about this, but there is a significant amount of mockery at the expense of how basic and kind of dumb the quote-unquote humor in Garfield is. So it's with a little bit of shame that I admit that I have in, like when I was probably in college, maybe in high school, I checked out from the library. You could get like a year's worth of strips in one kind of, they kind of blew it up. So it was a little bit bigger and it was kind of like this rectangular shaped book. And I would, I would just check one out after the other and like kind of the equivalent of scrolling on my phone back before I had a smartphone, I would just kind of sit on the couch and like flip through them for hours and not even really smile or laugh. But I probably read on the order of like 10 years worth of Garfield's back in the day. And there were occasional punchlines where I would show it to my dad and it would stick with me. This actually inspired me to try and find a couple of them. But he reuses so many punchlines over the course of 30 years that it's basically impossible to find a specific one at this point. There was one I really liked where, and I, I always always made me laugh when I thought about it, where the first panel is Garfield holding a piece of paper and he says something like, I have a list of 13 things that I hate about John. And then the second panel is John walking by with this completely ludicrous, ridiculous hat and walking out of panel. And then the third panel is Garfield holding the same piece of paper and saying, I have a list of 14 things I hate about John. And... I don't know why, but some of the dumb ones like that would always tickle my funny bone. So all this is to say is I was pretty familiar with the Garfield comic strip, and I've even read some of its weirder stuff. Like it had a whole fairly early on, like a little dark nightmare segment that went for a week or two. But I haven't seen like the cartoon or anything like that. I I don't know. What, What about you, Brian? I'm in a pretty similar place. I've always liked Garfield. I remember getting the the booklets. I don't know if it's exactly the ones you're talking about, but he, there's a series of like 40 of these, yeah, narrow books that they'd always have at the uh, used bookstore or at the Scholastic Book Fair. So definitely had some time spent reading through those. But also, I remember watching Garfield and Friends when I was like five, one of my earliest TV memories and they also had a bunch of like holiday tv specials that would always get paired up in the early days with the peanut specials to fill out an hour so i i also stan garfield i would say (laughs) i i know it has become ignominious and infamous for having a lot of stock gags and not really changing anything up ever But that's the nature of newspaper comics, really. I read a blog for a while called The Comics Curmudgeon, where he just focused on newspaper comics day in and day out. And they're all, like, possible to be boiled down to a dozen of the same setups. I think Garfield is just the one that managed to market itself best. It became a titan of the industry by cranking out a ton of merchandise like the garfields that just stick to the window of your car and having all this tv presence 
I, I think of it as kind of standing as the antithesis of like Calvin and Hobbes, which is held up and kind of lofty in the public imagining because it had this higher brow humor. And then after Bill Watterson had put out X many years, like how, however long a span of time, not super long. Right. He shut it down and he became a recluse and doesn't talk to anyone. Right, and he strictly forbids any marketing or promotional material related to Calvin and Hobbes. So if you ever see like Calvin pissing on a logo or something, know that that is not kosher by by Bill Watterson. But generally, I don't begrudge Jim Davis his fortune. I've got some Garfield ornaments on my Christmas tree, and they're they're some of the family favorites. Do you have a favorite currently running comic? Man, I don't read that many comics, unfortunately. I had a roommate in college who was super into web comics. And there were some good ones that I was reading for a while. Uh, Axe Cop, I was very into, but I think that's finished its run. Mm. That was one where, when it started, it was... The stories were written by a five-year-old, and then the art was done by his 29-year-old half-brother, who was like a professional comic artist. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. What about you? My favorite currently running newspaper comic is Nancy, authored by a mysterious figure known as Olivia James. Olivia James is the first woman to pen the long-running Nancy comic strip, which has through the years rotated through various artists and writers who have kind of put their own imprint on the same set of characters and conflict types. And Olivia James kind of has a postmodern, very millennial sense of humor, but it's also very good spirited. And uh, I highly recommend that if you're at all interested in newspaper comics, you know, the classic three panel, four panel, etc. Interesting. I guess I heard about this, but I thought it was like a week long thing, but it has its own Wikipedia article. Also, I think that something notable about Garfield is the people behind it, Paws Incorporated, are seemingly actually pretty okay with a lot of the tributes that get made. I remember a while back, like when I was in high school, there were some series online. There was one where it was Garfield strips, but they took out all the things that Garfield says. Because, of course, every line of Garfield's dialogue is actually in a thought bubble. It's not a speech bubble, because he's a cat. He doesn't really talk. So in this version, those were all taken out. And then it's just John talking to himself while Garfield is there. And then, of course, somebody took that to the next step and created something called Garfield minus Garfield, where Garfield is not there at all. He's just erased from the panels then it's really just a story of how John is completely alone and often mini strips are just him walking through the hallway <laughs> or like sitting at a table and that's the whole strip. And I had some big laughs with Garfield minus Garfield in my high school days. And like they actually published like printed collections of Garfield minus Garfield. So some of these projects have at least tacit support from the powers that be but the video i wanted to focus on specifically 
is presented as like a lecture. It's almost like an episode of Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Because it's a single hour-long take, at least it seems to be, of a man sitting on a stool in front of a green screen delivering this professorial speech about how much this single strip has impacted his life and shaped his worldview. While the score from Kundun, composed by experimental modernist composer Philip Glass, plays. And this narrator is played by John Blythe Barrymore, who is part of the famous Barrymore family of actors. He's Drew Barrymore's older half-brother, but he's like 20 years older. So he has a different mother, but the same father. In my research, I found out he was originally cast as Eddie Munster on The Munsters. But his mother didn't want him to be a child star. And I guess Drew's mother did not have a problem with that. <laughs> I don't know. Good for that guy's mom. I mean, I, I just in the past couple days have been reading about some of the people who were seriously messed up by being a child star. We talked about School of Rock two weeks ago, and the bassist wrote like an expose on how being in that movie kind of like ruined her life, basically. So, and if this guy was able to survive, make it through, and be a part of this project, you know that his mom probably did something right. True. I guess the people behind these Lasagna Cat videos have been identified as a creative studio called Fatal Farm. I think they've done some work for Adult Swim. And this is kind of in that vibe, like surreal humor that leans into the dark at times. I have a a list of a couple things that this made me think of, this whole thing. And one that it made me think of is Too Many Cooks. And... I eventually saw that, I don't know where it was, but I saw that somewhere that it was either speculated or even explicitly noted that Lasagna Cat, the way that it kind of took what we consider to be the most basic and dumb of comic art forms and expanded it into something completely ludicrous, was a inspiration for Too Many Cooks. Which I could just just as well have picked for for this episode is a masterpiece in my mind, um, where it basically takes sitcom intros and takes it to every possible extreme and turns it into a slasher movie with all sorts of surreal stuff in there. But yeah, I completely agree that Lasagna Cat is very much in the Adult Swim vibe. Indeed, and this video specifically is about how you can spin out the tiniest bit of inspiration into endless analysis. Because, as I mentioned, it's the story of this man, uh, John Barrymore, perhaps playing himself, who has dedicated his life to appreciating this single piece of art, this one Garfield strip from 1978, which he calls the pipe strip. So, what happens in this strip It opens with John sitting in his armchair with his newspaper open in front of him. He reaches over and taps the end table looking for something. In the second panel, he thinks, in a thought bubble, 
Now where could my pipe be? And in the final panel, we see Garfield smoking the pipe. And from off screen, John yells, Garfield! And I can assure you, after you've watched this video, you will not forget a single detail of this strip. Yes, it is perhaps not immediately stirring stuff, but that is the pipe strip. (laughs) From the beginning of the video, Mr. Barrymore expounds at length on his appreciation for this strip. What it made me think of, well, because we're not going to do a huge beat-by-beat plot synopsis, you're going to hear a lot of things that it made me think of, but uh, (laughs) one is an article by television host Mike Rowe, the guy who did Dirty Jobs on the Discovery Channel, and he did a piece about his first job that he got working in television, which was acting as a spokesman on QVC, the shopping channel. And he said that his interview slash audition consisted of him standing in front of the cameras. One of the people behind the camera handed him a pencil. And they said, sell me this pencil and don't stop talking. And so he had to come up with all of these virtues that the pencil had that he would extol. All the different merits of pencils. And then he was like making up a fake history of the pencil and... All the things that pencils have allowed humanity to do. And he just kept going and going and going. And, like, he said he got to, like, the eight-minute mark and had run out of stuff to say and just had to keep going. But was able to do it. And was able to keep thinking of erudite and engaging things to say to captivate the audience. And that's what it takes to be a TV host. And that is what John Barrymore does here very well, I would say. Yeah, I can't imagine why that would have made you think of this YouTube video at all. And the form of this video, they must have had two cameras on him running at the same time, because occasionally you'll get like a dramatic side shot of him that gets projected in the background. The setup, it's very minimalist. It's like three-point lighting on him. He's got a nice hair light behind him illuminating his shoulders. And he talks. For a whole hour. (laughs) It's debatable whether there are any cuts. Like occasionally something, some graphic will pass in front of his face and it may have hidden a cut. But they do a really good job of making it seem like it's one single take. It really does feel like a single continuous camera on one dude. And I don't know, even if there were cuts, it's kind of mind-blowing how they actually pulled this off. Like... I know there are movies where they're kind of they try really hard to make it be one take or have crazy long takes and film critics will be like, oh, my gosh, can you believe that they did this seven minute take? Can you believe there was a 12 minute take in this movie? And now every time I read that, I'm just going to be like amateurs, go go watch this YouTube video and, and you'll know you'll know what can be done. One of the things he says in his analysis of the pipe strip is, how could a mere mortal even make this? And that's what I think about this video, because he does not falter in his delivery, ever. And I I gotta wonder, like, is some of this improv? Possibly. But I don't think it could all be improv. In which case, you know, how much has he got committed to memory? Or does he have a teleprompter? He doesn't seem to. 
It's impressive. I agree. I was really looking for it in the second half. Like, is he going to show any signs of fatigue? There were like one or two times where it seemed like he might have been losing his focus for just like one second, basically. But certainly you would have to be looking for it to notice it. And yeah, man, if he's improvising stuff, I think he's only improvising like some of the transitions and some of the asides. You know, he he's definitely reciting something. I'm like imagining a teleprompter that's just scrolling for one hour and he has to like narrate it and make it sound compelling for 60 minutes straight. And it is an experience. You really need to just sit down and, as he says, take an hour. What's an hour? And contemplate it. Because us just describing it here is not quite going to get you to the full appreciation. Although, I think one of the greatest strengths of this video in terms of something that can be analyzed and talked about further on a podcast is that it offers a kind of sardonic and parody take on art criticism. I actually saw some parallels with F for Fake that we talked about. Oops, maybe that was a different podcast. (laughs) I seem to remember last week uh, hearing something about F for Fake. How that movie talked about the nature of art criticism and what gives art its value. Does it come from a narrow group of experts who say that that is something worthy of consideration and praise? I also saw it as being a criticism of like academic writing more broadly. Any Anything in the humanities, if you read like college-level academic papers, I have read some fluff like this. <laughs> I think with this video, something that will be interesting for Dan and I to talk about is the difference between our college experiences. Because I know Dan majored at least in mathematics and had a computer science background in high school, at least. I majored in film studies and American studies. And I know, especially in American studies, there were some very esoteric, arguably fluff studies that we had to read. And, And one was for a museum class and it was called the thingness of things (laughs) and it was about how like an object serves a purpose when it is being used but it serves a different purpose when it's in a museum case and i think that one sentence was the entire point of the article but it was like 50 pages long (laughs) And, and again, the title was The Thingness of Things. Some of that stuff can go pretty far up its own asshole. Like, I, I, I agree with that. I actually did take some film studies classes. You're right, I majored in math. And I am now a software developer. I minored in computer science. So it's not like this is my area of expertise in the same way it is for you. But I took a class called Screening Terror which was a film studies class about ways that terrorism has been depicted in film. And I loved that class and I learned a lot from it, but we spent basically a whole class looking at one frame of 
the documentary Man on Wire, which I still haven't seen and would like to recommend in the future should this podcast ever be a film podcast and not a, what did we say? Hold on. Uh, long form YouTube review podcast. But the fact that we could spend, you know, 45 minutes talking about one frame from a documentary, I was walking away from that. I was like, that is one thirtieth of a second on film. Did we really need to be spending 45 minutes talking about that one thirtieth of a second? I mean, it's essentially a photograph at that point. And my mom famously, famously, I say, as in famously with me and my brothers, had this rant about how she got really angry and knew she didn't want to study English or literature when she was a senior in high school. And they read Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea, which is just about a dude who goes fishing. And my mom read it. It was like, okay, that's a story about a guy who went fishing. And then they spent the next week in class talking about all the symbolism and stuff and that. She's like, no, it's a story about a guy going fishing. Why does there have to be all this other stuff on top of it? And I I do get that as an impulse. I will say I have found it enlightening to think about some of the thingness of things in some of the films and literature and stuff that I've encountered. I found it really illuminating. Sometimes it looks at the way that we subconsciously engage with art and culture and things we might not necessarily think about. And as soon as those things get pointed about, excuse me, as soon as those things get pointed out and you start thinking about them in that way, you kind of either come to a greater appreciation or perhaps a disdain for the thing that you are encountering like, I don't know, I did a another class called, I can't remember if this was from the Screening Terror class, or I took another film class about the history of gangster films, and we looked at Die Hard, and how, I don't know, just like breaking down the way that we viewed the character John McClane as both a man, but also the supernatural force, and how the film kind of toggles back and forth between that particularly the scene where there's glass that breaks on the ground, which in itself is like a very mundane thing. But the fact that Bruce Willis's character has to walk across it really highlights how this person is a man and kind of shatters this image we have of this hero as this superpowered protagonist who's able to overcome anything because he's a dude who has to walk across broken glass with bare feet. And I don't know, like thinking about some of those things actually does make me appreciate the art a little bit more, but there is a fine line to it. And there is a, a point where it can go far too far. So I thought that this movie did, sorry, I thought that this YouTube clip did a great job of stretching that how far can it go to its maximum elasticity, I suppose. My, my brother also likes to go off about... I think what he, I think the way he says it is symbolism isn't real or something <laughs> along those lines. You might have heard it described as sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah, actually, I was going to bring that up later because smoking is a theme here. And there's one point where I think only one point where the narrator, essentially the fact that smoking like in film history has always been a 
phallic symbol associated and used in coding for certain things about certain characters. And I know there is the famous saying, sometimes attributed to Freud, but I actually read up that it was probably not actually said by Freud, but sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Don't read too much into things. But given how deep this clip went down the rabbit hole, I was kind of surprised it didn't look at it more from that angle of Garfield having John's long, stiff wooden rod in his mouth in the third panel. Right, well, the thread that goes down that road is basically saying that Garfield has emasculated John. That's the whole joke here, is that he has taken his pipe. (laughs) That John is powerless, and Garfield has the power, and Garfield has the phallic smoking implement. Barrymore also tells the tale of a fictional person involved in the either the history of tobacco or the history of newspapers, because we go that deep into things. But he says, impotent. He was impotent. He had a metaphorical pipe that did not work. That's right. Yeah, that's a good one. And really, the writing here is very strong throughout. We get lots of name dropping of deep concepts and famous artist names and philosopher names. This also, to me, felt like Orson Welles and F for Fake. Or perhaps a parody of people like Orson Welles and F for Fake. Right. Uh, also, Barrymore has got the Carl Sagan wardrobe. He's got the blazer on turtleneck as he spouts these deep wisdoms. Another thing that didn't come up that I was expecting to come up is, well, it sort of did come up. And it's possible I missed it being more directly addressed, but... The painting has various titles. I I think it is colloquially known as This Is Not a Pipe. I think it's officially titled The Treachery of Images. But the narrator never actually addresses that painting and kind of the concepts behind it directly. Although at one point, the text portion of that painting kind of scrolls across the background. So at least... Lasagna Cat was aware of that as they were making this. Yes, Rene Magritte is probably my favorite painter. I know it's a normie choice, but I really like all of his surrealist art and what it makes you think about. Uh, The Son of Man is a favorite for me. The one where the guy has the apple hovering in front of his face. There's another one also where it's like uh, an easel set up in front of a window and like the image from the window bleeds into the canvas on the easel and that one is also very cool oh interesting i like any anything like that that messes with your eyes like mc escher and really any of these commentary threads are worth considering this video will make you think even if some of it is very silly Like, you almost start to think that he's serious, and then something will happen that'll pull you back, but then you'll get drawn in again, because he's a compelling presenter. It rarely goes so far afield. You can actually kind of follow along with what he's saying. But yeah, there are moments where he pulls you right out. Like, he talks about at one point, I just jotted this quote down, how the world is messed up. Children being born eight or nine at a time. I don't even know what he meant by that, but I was like, okay, 
Someone was having fun there. <laughs> oh, man. There are so many good quotes in this. And the way that he was able to keep a straight face this whole time, there's a bit where he talks about a person named Ernie Barguckle as a comparison point for John Arbuckle as an, perhaps inspiration for Jim Davis. And the fact that that Barrymore was able to keep a straight face for all of this. I was impressed. So I sometimes like to listen to this video just in the background while I'm doing other things. And the one that always makes me crack up every time is when he is talking about the supposed slang term smoking cat. <laughs> and he says, the term smoking cat, a mistranslation, bastardization of smoking rat. And something about that delivery is very funny to me. But to be serious, the moment of this that most spoke to me is... So this guy has really told his life story, this character, of how the pipe strip has completely dominated his thinking and really taken over his life to the point that he becomes a pathetic figure. And he talks about a time when he was eating lunch on a bench... And he looks across the way and sees a plumber grabbing tools out of his van. And the plumber pauses for a moment and scratches his head and says, Now where could my pipe wrench be? And John Barrymore like leaps up from his bench and runs over to the plumber. And he says, Your cat took it! <laughs> Expecting that the plumber is going to have this same intense internalization of the pipe strip and understand what the heck he's talking about but the plumber just kind of chuckles and walks away like awkwardly but john barrymore says that he took that as a genuine moment of connection and i think that's a, a bit of commentary on whether we can truly share our experience of a piece of art with another person it's interesting. Like, obviously this is taking things to an absurd extreme. I don't think there are many people who have had their thought processes and internal lives completely overtaken by a single Garfield strip. But when you consume a piece of art, is anyone else really having the same experience when they consume it? Like, how, how authentic and how deep does your connection over the shared consumption of that piece of art go? So, something like a few months ago, we had one of my good friends, Nate, on the podcast, and we talked about the movie The Apartment. And I've had a lot of kind of philosophical, what is the nature of art conversations with Nate over the decade and a half I've known him. And one thing that we've kind of talked about and kind of observed is that Things like movie quotes or specific songs, or nowadays probably the equivalent is memes, become this kind of touchstone and basically becomes part of your identity is like liking this thing. And so if you meet another person who talks in the same lexicon of similar things or even just specific things, like, oh, someone throws out a fight club quote. And if somebody else hears that who likes fight club, 
all of a sudden you feel like your best friends because you both have this strong connection to Fight Club. I mean, obviously, it might not be the exact same connection. You might have different reactions, different ways it spoke to you, different things about it you liked. But I think it is a real thing to connect with art in similar ways and having that be something that allows you to interface ideas and connection with other people. And I think this took it to like an extreme comic example where the person clearly didn't mean it. But I do think that it, that, that is a real thing. Um, although I do think you have something there when you say that it's never exactly the same. Like that's just something you can't escape. You can never escape your own biases, your own perspective, the things that led you to something and the way that you interact with something. Like you can never fully escape that because it's going to be unique for every single person and every single scenario. Like you're equal parts a participant in the viewing of a movie that the movie itself is basically or whatever type of art you want to talk about. But I, the flip side of that and the other side of that is I do think that people connect with things in similar ways and do have that be a significant part of their own identities in the same way that this ridiculous over the top character in this YouTube sketch kind of parodies that and brings it to its ridiculous extreme. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And now I kind of just wanted to share some of my favorite quotes from this presentation, this TED Talk. Honestly, the whole thing just about is poetry to me <laughs> and extremely quotable. But I won't rob you of the experience of hearing some of it the first time for yourself, because I know that you're all going to go out and dedicate an hour to this. Of course. At least. <laughs> what is an hour? But some of my favorite lines, he says, Do I find perfection in many things? Some things, I would say. Some things are perfect. And this is one of them. Another is, You can look at everything as a man and a cat, two beings in harmony and at war. <laughs> then one that pops into my mind frequently in just my day-to-day -day life when I'm doing things. He talks about his first time glancing down and seeing the comic in the newspaper, and he says, I thought to myself, ah, interesting. I'll have to see this later. <laughs> so now if a, if a headline catches my eye, I always think, ah, interesting. I'll have to see this later. Then, uh, one, one of the things he talks about is how this specific strip stuck out to him and meant more to him than any other Garfield strip he's ever seen. And so he narrates, I sent letters to Paws Incorporated, long letters, pages upon pages, asking if Mr. Jim Davis could somehow publish just the one comic over and over again. It would be meditative, I wrote. The strength of that. Could you imagine? <laughs> that actually made me think of the webcomic Dinosaur Comics. Is that one you've ever scrolled through? A little bit, and I think I know what you're going for. Well, the gimmick of that webcomic is it uses the same panels for every single comic, but it just adds different speech bubbles. And... I mean, it's been going on for, man, I don't even know how many years. 
probably more than 15 years. I would like to look it up sometime. But seeing the same thing over and over again when he talked about that made me think of that gimmick for dinosaur comics. For you big, long-form video essay fans, as I'm sure you all are, there is a documentary on YouTube about Lasagna Cat called Lasagna Cat The Dark Side of Garfield. It's about 20 minutes long, so relatively brisk by us, by our standards. But that talks about the gist of the whole Lasagna Cat project essentially being shining a light on how much repetition takes place in Garfield. So this is kind of meta-commentary on that. How great would it be if it literally was the single strip over and over and over again? Interesting. It's like the distillation of the appeal of Garfield saying the same four punchlines that people sipping their coffee, pulling up the newspaper, want to read over and over. This guy's fat. This guy doesn't like Mondays. This guy likes eating. And this guy doesn't get along with others. Those are the four basic jokes that are in Garfield, I think. Another talking point. And I think one of the most cathartic moments of John Barrymore's delivery is when he reads off a written statement he claims to have penned in, like, 1981, shortly after becoming enamored with the comic. And he reads, Many of you say, Oh, but I am not blind. I have never been blind. But when you truly see, you will understand just how truly blind you once were to even think it right to say you were not blind. What does a blind man see? Blackness. Darkness. Blankness. Blank darkness. Dark blankness. The absence of things. Quite literally, no thing. Nothing. Nothings. So you see nothing, and I bring you into the light. A cat has your pipe. You've been blind. Do you understand this? The cat has your pipe. You can't fully immerse yourself. You don't have the light. You don't have the radiance, the radical light, the radically radiant light of truth and truth's belonging love and nature of light and loving truthful radiance. So don't be bold and make bold statements. I know of you. The cat has your pipe. The cat has your pipe. Remember that. I think I want the radically radiant light of truth and truth's belonging love and nature of light and loving truthful radiance to be the thing that's on my tombstone when I die. If not that, I certainly want some quote from this video on my tombstone. (laughs) And that, in essence, is 727-1978. I strongly recommend that you track it down for yourself and take it in. I'd like to share a couple of things before we wrap up here. One is a couple of just a couple of quotes I liked. So so one quote I liked was when he talks about a cat rage room and he talks about how a seasoned cat owner would would be aware of such thing as a cat rage room. And I just loved the phrasing a seasoned cat owner. Like what does that even mean? <laughs> So, I'm glad you brought that up because this was a huge bonding moment with my friend Ben, who is a cat owner, a seasoned cat owner, you might say. 
and he really, really loves this video to the point that he's actually done the thing that John Barrymore describes when he says that you should print the comic out so that it's three feet long and a foot tall so that you can wrap it around your head and like <laughs> rotate it around your head so you can consume it endlessly. So Ben has actually done this. And so for Christmas last year, I commissioned a picture that is the pipe strip, but with him as John and his cat as Garfield. Oh man, that's amazing. Did you have any other moments that struck you as especially profound? <laughs> so you mentioned the the thing where he goes and talks to the plumber. And I like the way that he leads to that anecdote. He says, Just last week I was eating lunch next to the municipal court as I do every Thursday. And I just loved how it turned into this. Like, I feel like at the halfway point of this YouTube video, it shifts from making fun of people who think too much about art to just how completely ludicrously pathetic can we make this narrator. And for me, that was a high point of that is a guy who goes and eats lunch by himself next to the courthouse every Thursday. I don't, why Thursdays? Who, who knows? But he, that day he was eating a ham sandwich, an apple, and a bag of chips. And I don't, that tickled me for some reason. We'll talk about it a little more as we get into our second video selection of the evening. But I think this video is a little closer to my lived experience. And the next video might be a little closer to Dan's lived experience. <laughs> because many's the time I've eaten lunch alone on a bench, perhaps not in front of the municipal court. Another turn of phrase I really liked is when he described at one point Garfield as a slap-happy version of Don Quixote, which, what sort of genius comes up with that as a descriptor of the fat cat who doesn't like Mondays? I don't know. That was a good one. There is one thing, I, I jotted this down, I do not remember the context for it, but where will you be when the cat reveals himself? I thought that was a very dramatic way to describe your interaction with a Garfield comic. It's almost giving away one of the better punchlines of the video. You described the thing where he rotates himself around a looping version of the strip. But the way that he leads into that, I, I just absolutely loved. He said, you could, and yes, I have on more than one occasion, print this strip on a giant piece of paper. Like the idea that he has on more than one occasion printed a giant version of this three-panel strip from 1978. I found a very funny image. A couple other thoughts in, in no particular order. One is, so there's a website called Go Comics, which basically posts the daily newspaper comics, but they get archives of whole comics going back very far. And there is a page for this post. So, like, so this is up there in the Garfield. It has the full Garfield archives on Go Comics. And a user signed up with the username of John Blythe Barrymore and posted the entirety of the transcript of this YouTube video in 39 comments. And someone replied after the 39th, dude, how long did it take you to write this? And there's like three or four people who didn't clearly know the origin of it before 
people started replying, clearly getting it and kind of in some cases piling on the joke. But I just imagine myself as someone scrolling through old Garfields and seeing 39 comments about this from this guy with this insight onto this uh, this comic strip. So the other thing I considered getting Ben for Christmas was an original newspaper from 1978 with the comic strip in there. Oh, man. But I, there are websites to track down a specific dates newspaper, but none of them would let me scroll through to see if it actually had the comics in there. Oh, no. So I couldn't, couldn't figure it out. I couldn't yeah. figure out how to get there. But I think I arrived at a, a satisfactory endpoint. Anyway, it sounds like a good gift. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to share, I had some thoughts about the strip that did not come up in the the somehow in one hour did not come up. Well, that's why we're here for deeper analysis. It's the same <laughs> reason we spin all of our movies or whatever we happen to be covering into commentary that is pretty much just as long every time. So one cool effect of the strip that does not, at least to my memory, get commented on is the way that the smoke from the pipe actually combines with the outline of the third strip as if the thing that he is smoking is somehow his connection with the outer world, his connection with us. It's like there, there should be more about what is actually being burnt and smoked and inhaled and how that in fact aligns with the very barrier of his existence. I feel like there was fuel there for some good discussion. That's a great point. He really only talks about the white space between the panels one time. And, and to that point about white space. So I actually took a class that was, man, I don't even remember what the topic of it was. It might've been comics related in some way graphic novel related or something. And the first thing we read was Scott McCloud's book called Understanding Comics, which is a graphic novel about how graphic novels and comics work. And he really kind of highlights how much comics or the, the art form that he calls sequential art takes advantage of some of the things that the human brain does with regards to interpolation and making assumptions about how things are connected. So we basically just take for granted that the voice that comes from afar is John. And the reason we do that is because the previous strips had John. And it's kind of like a very fundamental thing that might not be obvious, but why do we assume, like how come our brain is able to take those things and make the association and assume that the unidentified voice from afar is in fact John. Well, obviously, because it's what we've been led up to thinking that should be. But the very fact that we as consumers of the comic and perhaps Garfield have to know that this person who is speaking, this person who is calling his name is in fact John. In fact, the person we've seen in the two previous panels. If you're going to spend an hour talking about the film, I feel like you at least need to touch on that. That's a great point. As he does say, John is not seen. He is calling from somewhere near, but not clear. <laughs> near, but not clear. I did remember one more line I really enjoy and that I think of in contexts not connected to this video. When he says, 
comedy, or he says, comedy, yes, there is comedy. The Greek muse Thalia's presence is strong here. <laughs> so when something funny happens, I will occasionally think, the Greek muse Thalia's presence is strong here. <laughs> it's like the geekiest way of saying, that made me laugh. Comedy, yes, there is comedy. Like, you could just type LOL or do the crying face emoji. Or you could say that whole bit. I had a couple of complaints. I don't know if you're going to do a formal good things, not so good things here. Sure. Why not uh, let it fly? I mean, the main thing is that I feel like 60 minutes was maybe too long. Like, I really would have gotten the same effect from 20 or 30 minutes. And by the last 15 minutes, I was kind of checking my watch as much as I was paying great attention to the detail. I don't know what your thoughts are on the actual length here. Well, the only note that I jotted down in the not-so-good section was, does it outstay its welcome? Question <laughs> mark. I think you could argue that it does, but I really appreciate almost everything about it. And now on, like, my 10th watch, I do reach a point where I'm kind of looking at the bar to see how far along it is. But I think it's important that it's an hour because he mentions uh, the segment that I've talked about where he says, what's an hour? Right. Uh, what does it mean to dedicate an hour of your life to something, to the consideration of a piece of art? And there may be more worthwhile artworks, realistically, <laughs> to think about for an hour, but... I think it is intentional, if nothing else. Gotcha. So now that I've spoken my piece about how the pipe strip should become an integral part of your life, Dan, what did you have us watch? So, I had us watch Heavy Metal Parking Lot. This is a 1986 documentary filmed by two guys named Jeff Krulik and John Hain. So, you said you got a chance to catch up with this one? Yes, I watched the series. So, I want to tell you a little bit. I've thought a lot about Heavy Metal Parking Lot in the past, I don't know. I actually don't remember how I initially discovered this. But ever since I've discovered it, I've been kind of obsessed with it. And I've thought a lot about it. And I've watched it many, many times. And I've learned a little bit more about how it was created. So I was going to tell you kind of a little bit about this documentary, and then we can talk about what's in it and some of our reactions to it. So Jeff Krulik and John Hain were two amateur filmmakers in the D.C. area, one of whom, Krulik, was a uh, TV station manager. He worked at a TV station. They, they somehow connected, and they decided they wanted to make documentaries together. That was like their ambition. So because Krulik worked at this TV station, he had access to video cameras and equipment. And they had the idea of filming the people who attended concerts at a nearby arena and maybe first airing it as a segment at the TV station where Krulik worked, but ultimately having to be its own film as like a sort of documentary. And so... One day they saw that there was a concert coming up for Judas Priest on May 31st, 1986. And they bought a couple of tickets not to attend the show, but to 
get access to the people who were in the parking lot waiting to go into the stadium. So this was at the Capitol Center in Largo, Maryland, a concert venue which has since been demolished. But it's worth noting that Judas Priest in particular was an interesting choice because in the mid-1980s, Judas Priest was like the poster boy for being a bad guy. There were politicians and parents and publicity that basically painted out heavy metal and Judas Priest in particular as being this thing that is brainwashing our kids for evil. Kind of like Marilyn Manson a decade later. Yeah, or violent video games or gangsta rap. It's a theme that never goes away. There's always something that's corrupting our kids. And in the mid-1980s, it was Judas Priest. In fact, the politician Tipper Gore, who's also famous as the, I think now ex-wife of presidential candidate Al Gore and former vice president Al Gore, had made multiple public remarks against Judas Priest. And this had what we now call on the internet the Streisand effect, where if you try to censor someone, then that only draws further attention to them. And Judas Priest kind of became this icon for shameless bad boys and bad girls who wanted to stick it to the man. So anyways, Krulik and Hain were at this concert and they just pulled into this parking lot and they pulled out their camera. And remember, this is the mid 80s. Camera equipment was still bulky. It had a short battery life. You couldn't get that much footage on one tape. And they started walking around filming and they thought it was a bust at first. They were not getting much good material because whenever they encountered concert goers, they would try to basically explain the project that they were trying to do. They'd be like, oh, we work for a TV station and we might film this and air it there, but we also might make it a documentary. And I don't know, we just wanted to capture kind of this vibe. And when they did that intro, they didn't get much feedback from people. And apparently one of them at some point between going from group to group said, let's just say we're from MTV and see what happens. And apparently this was like the magic ticket, just saying we're from MTV, got people to open up and reply. And you can actually see this at one point in the documentary towards the end where someone says, who are you from? And the guy just says, we're from MTV. The whoever's behind the camera at that point says that. And people really did open up and kind of ham it up for the camera whenever that was said. So apparently they only had about an hour, like one to two hours total to film because it was going to start to get dark. And they're dealing with, you know, videotape recorders from the mid 80s, like not very high def stuff. And it wasn't going to do well in the dark. And also people at some point were going to start heading into the actual stadium to see the show. So... In that one to two hours, they they ended up including in the documentary just over 15 minutes, which let's say it was about an hour, a little over an hour. You're talking about a quarter of what they actually filmed being included, which is absolutely insane to me because the content that they included is so compelling. Like I would have believed that this was the best footage from like 10 crews walking around filming for hours and hours. The final documentary 
including credits, intro, outro segments, was 17 minutes. When they made it, they had this videotape. They could they could go play this videotape. So they went to a local film club and they played it. They got pretty good feedback. But then they're like, okay, what do we do? We have this thing we made. What do we do with it now? And it was essentially shelved because they had shared it with the local community and they were done with it. And they thought about submitting it to film festivals that took short documentaries as a subject. But basically all of them rejected them because in that time, film festivals only accepted film. They didn't accept videotapes. It had to actually be on film. And there wasn't really a mechanism or at least an affordable mechanism for converting VHS tapes back onto film strip that could go into traditional projectors. And so they just kind of held on to this tape that they had and would every now and then show it at some party or some club or something like that. They tried to show it at an actual Judas Priest show and they got as far as getting backstage passes and access to the guy who controlled the AV stuff, but it got kibotched at the last minute. And so it seemed like this movie had reached its end state and would never be seen by anyone beyond the small bubble who had seen it. But one fan of it got a copy and mailed it to a guy in the L.A. area named Robert Schaffner, who went by the name Colonel Rob. And so apparently this dude was like the freakazoid access to every weird video ever ran what he called the anti-blockbuster where they didn't have mainstream stuff. They only had weird stuff and you would go and he would just give you a video like you're going to like this. And when he got his hands on it, he became an immediate fan and he had connections to people who were in the acting business, but also musicians. So apparently right around this time, rock bands were like really obsessed almost in a competitive way as like your marker of hipness of having the most obscure and bizarre video that you possibly could on your tour bus. And so once this one kind of made it into that ecosystem, it became a hot thing. The thing you had to have on your tour bus if you were a touring rock band in the early 90s. And in particular, the legendary rock band Nirvana apparently loved this video and would play it on loop in their tour buses. And that is kind of a big part of its notoriety to this day is that a lot of these bands from back in the day kind of worshiped this video. And here's where I'm starting to see connections to 727-1978, how these people projected a lot of value onto this thing that is arguably, there's not much to it, I guess. I mean, I also see connections to, like, School of Rock. You know, you're not hardcore unless you live hardcore. Right. It's a part of the rock and roll lifestyle. <laughs> so a lot of these details I got from this really great history of the movie that was written on the blog Deadspin. If you Google Deadspin Heavy Metal Parking Lot, you'll find this article. And it goes kind of into the backstory. It actually goes into a lot more detail about the lifespan of this film and how it kind of went from a nothing to being a cult favorite, as well as some of the backstories of some of the characters depicted in this film. But if you're interested, I definitely recommend going to, to seek that article out. So that's kind of the, the backstory for heavy metal parking lot. 
these two guys just had this idea, went and filmed it. Before I actually talk about what's in the film, any thoughts, Brian? So I'm going to talk about a few other videos that this reminds me of. I think we'll follow up our discussion of this one with talk of the sequels, which is probably the point that I'll bring that up. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to say that after however much time, we still got to talk about the meat of what's actually in this video. <laughs> so Heavy Metal Parking Lot does not really have much of a plot. It's just people hanging out in a parking lot before a concert and them just kind of talking. But I wanted to discuss some of the prominent aesthetic elements of this film that might stand out to you as you watch it. I've kind of sorted these in ascending order in terms of the number of exclamation points I'd use when writing about this particular element of the film. So I give one exclamation point, the cars. These are all mid eighties cars. The shapes and proportions of eighties cars was just way different. I don't know what it is about them, but you look at it and you know, it's an eighties car. Some of the sportier ones look really cool. And some of the less sporty ones just look so ugly just tacky as hell, really horrible. And I just love it. I love the cool cars, I love the ugly ones, and it's a parking lot, so of course there's cars. And I don't know, I just, I, I get a sense of joy looking at these these vehicles. So what struck me, I don't know how many exclamation points this is gonna get, <laughs> is how skinny everybody is. And there's a lot of shirtless dudes here. Pretty much everybody there is white. There are like two notable exceptions. But there's a lot of shirtless dudes, very, very heavily skewed male. Um, there are some women. But I just saw a lot of, uh, like, scrawny torsos. That's at about one and a half exclamation points for me. You're right. Okay. And it's, <laughs> I don't know how much to attribute it to the smoking and the drug usage, which can sometimes make you a little bit leaner, but... You're definitely right that there's a lot of shirtless people and in general, the characters depicted are not, their BMI would not qualify for a COVID-19 vaccine right now. So for me, for two exclamation points was the mullets, the hair. Everybody's got out of this world hair in this film. The mullets are by far the prominent thing for the men where you got the just ugly ass shaggy in the back why would anyone think that this was appealing? I don't know. Look, the women all have this thing. I don't know if there's a name for this style, but the front top is kind of poofy. It's almost like a sphere. And then the rest of the hair is kind of normal, but the whole look is dominated by that front poof. Three exclamation points for me. The booze and the drugs. This film does not leave any doubt that this environment was very open and freewheeling when it came to mind-altering substances. Basically, everyone we see is drinking or toking. Even just drugs that are explicitly mentioned as having been recently taken by people in the 15 minutes of this film, you get a wide variety of alcohols. You get pot, cocaine, and acid. And I've read in subsequent interviews that PCP was definitely there too, so... A lot of uh, booze and drugs going around, and it's very prominent. Yeah, the dude who says he's on acid, and then the cameraman's like, oh, is that what you're on? <laughs> Five exclamation points for me. The clothes. 
Man, it seems like every single person depicted has something that is either too short or too tight. Or in a couple of cases, like way too long. People have short shorts, these ridiculous graphic tees. A lot of people have homemade t-shirts, or at least they kind of feel homemade. There's an iconic one that is fuck off, but the OFF is like slightly off kilter. And I've seen homemade versions of this. I don't know if they bought it somewhere or they just made it, but it feels like they made it. I feel like homemade t-shirts isn't a thing anymore, but it might've been a thing at some point. But in general, the clothes here are just kind of mind blowing. Did you have any favorite particular looks that you can think of, Brian? There's a dude who looks like the guy who used to be on Epic Mealtime. Like the the one stocky dude that the camera passes by is a guy who's got the big beard and sunglasses. Okay. Who looks like the, the YouTube star a few years back who used to do the Epic Mealtime videos. Nice. So because it's, this film is just people talking before a concert, I don't have an actual recap, but I do want to spend some time talking about the people we meet. In fact, I've ranked my top five favorite people. Really, it's more like groups of people because you tend to meet them in groups of a few. So I have my top five people, but I want to talk about the honorable mentions, the people who didn't make the top five. So most of these are just in order that we see them in the 17 minutes. So the first one is Dave and Don. So Dave is 20 years old. Don is 13 years old. That's one of the things they say. And they have a kiss in a way that is suggestive that they are perhaps a romantic couple. It's a bold way to open the film. Yeah, this is the very beginning of the movie. I'm glad that you brought it up. I wasn't sure I heard that right. Nobody in the YouTube comments was talking about that. <laughs> I was like, did... Wait, he said he was 20, right? And then she said she was 13. And this is the first thing that's said in the movie. Okay, I guess we're moving on. Yeah, I, I did read some backstory on this. So apparently they were not a romantic item. Apparently they just were family friends. Although it's a little weird. They're like arm in arm. I don't know. But he was kind of like looking out for her. And apparently there is a cut there. So they're kind of talking and then it cuts and they kiss. And apparently the crew egged them on to have a kiss. Oh. Although there's some weird vibes there. He says he's headed to the Air Force in two weeks. To quote Ferris Bueller, oh, that's how it is in their family. <laughs> when I say family friends, I mean not actually in the same family. Sure, sure. But, but yeah. Still a little off. Next one I wanted to call out, an honorable mention. There's this girl in a white dress, and she has a scab. I think it's on her knee. And the crew coaxes out of her. I think she pretty happily volunteers it that it was from having sex in a car that she got this scab. She says, don't ever get it in a car. And this interview with her has one of the best punchlines in the whole film, where at the end of it, they're like, about to walk away from her and she says yeah metallica it's not a metallica concert she thought it was a metallica concert that has been subsequently confirmed in interviews with her when she went to this concert she thought it was a metallica concert it's an iron maiden concert excuse me it's a judas priest concert <laughs> yeah iron maiden <laughs> all right another honorable mention 
this genuinely frightening dude in a white DC 101 shirt. So like a lot of these people look kind of like just people, but this dude looks like an addled meth head or something. He rocks out so hard. It's kind of admirable, but you just get the sense there's something off about this guy. He, he says, priest is the best. Let me tell you. And then he talks for like 15 more seconds and I can't make out more than one, like one word at a time of what he's saying for the next 15 seconds. I got a long list of honorable mentions here because there's a lot of people to love in this. Are we not even to the top five yet? No, we're not. We're not close to the top five yet. There's one guy who has this really bad facial hair and he has a shirt that says, kill them all. Let God sort them out. And his buddy says, so they're, they're kind of standing next to this car. This guy with the shirt, his buddy says, hey, check out that chick. You seen those bazonkers? What do you think? And then it kind of zooms in on the girl and she gives this embarrassed smile, which I do not blame her for having an embarrassed smile at that moment. And then that buddy pulls out a shirt that he's going to wear because he's shirtless at this moment. But he pulls out a shirt that says, don't get mad, nuke the bastards, which made me think of the Simpsons. Exactly. Nuke the whales because you got to nuke something. Oh, that was my thought process, too. Which, honestly, like, that was something I thought about, too. 1986 was, well, I don't know when the Tracy Ullman shorts were on, but The Simpsons started up in 1989. It's the same approximate generation. Yeah. So there's another guy. He's got a chest of beer. It's like a like cooler. You can reach in. But he explains, yeah, I got Bush and Budweiser, so you know. You got some choice, which to me is hilarious. It's like one cheap beer or another cheap beer. I guess I'm spoiled in the 21st century with all of our micro brews and craft beers. But the fact that he was pitching that you got Bush and Budweiser, so you got some choice when all of that is swill to me, made me laugh pretty hard. <laughs> so you didn't have the Bush and Budweiser episode of your old beer cast? No, that wasn't one for us. Although I think I did at one point play a prank where I made one beer a Bud Light and just tried to see if Mike and uh, Colton could figure that one out. If you go back to our, our beer cast days. But no, I, I was never a Bush versus Budweiser guy. There's there's a short one where they, they come to the shirtless guy and he's just not engaging with the filming crew at all. And the crew says, who are you here to see tonight? And the guy just offhandedly says, your mother. And then it cuts away from him. I don't know. I had appreciation for this guy who was going to live in his own universe and not engage with the guy with the camera. We also cut to a group of a whole bunch of guys wearing various shirts. In particular, the, the one spokesman is wearing a Led Zeppelin shirt that I know that people were still wearing the equivalent of that shirt when we were in high school. I can think of a certain person we were in marching band with who had that exact t-shirt, actually, Brian. And he he gets asked, why are your girlfriends not there to, to go see Judas Priest? And he says, I don't know. They're stupid, man. And in that moment, I was very much doubting whether he actually had a girlfriend. That's all I got to say about that guy. I, I don't know. I mean, if, if you were there and you could not understand why... <laughs> the fair sex might not want to attend, then I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hard to say. Like I said, it was a male-dominated event. Audience skewed heavily male. 
Right. In general, I want to shout out anytime somebody started chanting, priest, 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 priest. To this day, I get the random urge to start chanting that whenever I get amped about something. I don't even like Judas Priest. Like I, I listen to a couple of their songs and I'm like actively disinterested in their sound. But I still want to start chanting priest, priest, priest. So there's there's a whole whole bunch of people who are kind of involved in that in this film. I realize now how long my uh, honorable mentions list is, but there's a lot of good dudes in this film. <laughs> yeah, again, this the running time of this film is 16 minutes, slightly <laughs> longer if you like include the credits. There's a guy. So at one point they're like filming a whole line of people getting going into the concert, and there's this dude wearing a Budweiser shirt who just gives a big thumbs up. It just like an epically big thumbs up. So one thing about this movie is every time I watch it, there's someone else that I spend a lot of time thinking about over the next couple days. And for me this time it was thumbs up guy wearing the Budweiser shirt. I don't know if this is the epic mealtime guy that you were talking about, but he just kind of freezes to give the camera an obnoxious thumbs up. And it made me laugh really hard this time. Does he have a big beard? He, I don't remember if he has a beard or not. He definitely has some facial hair. Most of these people do. I don't know if it's a big beard. But I guess I want to know, is this guy like a thumbs up guy? Is he known for his thumbs up? Or was this just like a momentary whim for him? And now he will be known for eternity as the one guy who gave that thumbs up in that one documentary. He, like he's a an iconic thumbs up guy now. I don't know. Was that like a part of his personality in general? That's interesting. Something that applies to both of these videos is a concept that we talked about in one of my film classes along the way, which is the idea that film is a generous medium. Interesting. And what this means is anything that is happening in front of the camera is going to get captured whether or not it is 100% the intent of the person holding the camera. So if you're writing a book, every word that's in that book is intentionally put there. But if you're running a film camera, you're not necessarily responsible for the world in front of the lens. Like, hmm. especially if it's a documentary, things are just happening. And you're almost passive in a sense. Right. Like a guy in a Budweiser shirt is giving a thumbs up. So analysis, you know, into the symbolism of things is a little different when you're looking at a film, especially a documentary, than, say, a book or a poem. I think that's fair. So I jumped in there, but uh, who else caught your eye as a notable personage? <laughs> Well, in that same line of, of fellas waiting to get into the priest concert, there's a big black dude smoking a joint who kind of steps out from the line and blocks the camera. And he says, who you from? And this is where we hear the crew say, MTV. And the guy says, bullshit. And I just love the way he says the word bullshit. It's, it might be my favorite utterance of the word bullshit in any medium. Just a small handful of... Uh, Further runner-ups before I get to my top five. <laughs> <laughs> There's a group of friends whose friend died, and they're getting—they're just so thrilled. They're getting backstage passes because their friend died. 
they couldn't be more happy about getting these backstage passes. But, you know, it's because their friend died in a car accident. To me, this is a moment where you get the fact that we're just getting we're just getting a small glimpse of these people's lives. So something that Dan and I talk about in our chat, our, our group chat with only two people, is, you know, a statement hits you hard when you can react to it equally well with all six of the default Facebook reacts. <laughs> and to me, this story of Tyler, the dead friend who earned them all these backstage passes was an all six react moment. <laughs> I could cry, I could laugh, I could angry react, and all would be all would be warranted. So there's a parking lot attendant who has an accent that if you had talked to me in this accent, I would have said you made that up that accent. That's not a real accent. But he says it's a Jamaican accent. He says he's from Jamaica. He has a couple of good lines and he says, I've never seen such a thing in all my life since I've been here about these crazy people in the the parking lot. And as he's wrapping that up, another honorable mention guy, this dude just grabs the microphone. The middle of the chat, he just takes it. And this guy is clearly just blotto plastered, just out of his mind. And he whoops into the microphone for a solid 10 seconds. He's like, and that made me laugh this time. It's like in the middle of this conversation, this guy just takes it. So you said that almost everyone is white. We talked about the one big black guy. They also focus on this other group of guys. I'm not good with accents, as I've already revealed here. I think their accent was Hispanic. It might have been Filipino. I'm really not sure. I was also wondering if they were Asian or Hispanic, and I wasn't sure. <laughs> and possibly F Filipino's kind of like the, the union point. Right. So this guy... He has this quirk. He shows off his ticket and he shrugs like five times in the 20 seconds we see him on screen. And he acts all coy about where he got his ticket. But he's very proudly like waving his ticket in the air that he's going to get to go see Judas Priest. And he also takes a swig of liquor. The top is on the liquor the first time he tries to swig it. So he has to like take it down and take the top off. And I don't know, the fact that he shrugged for like five times... To me, that was his defining characteristic, so, being very inarticulate or very, very coy. The thumbs up guy and the shrug guy. Yeah, exactly. There's also this one dude who, to me, ironically, stands out because he looks so normal. He's wearing a, just a red polo shirt, and he's got a very simple shaggy haircut. It's not a mullet. And he has this great line. Honestly, I think we could have gone to high school with a guy who looks just like this. Like, he really looks like a normal guy that you would just see in a place. I don't know. And he says, my goal tonight is to sit back, run back to my car, have a few beers, and puke on some unsuspecting victims. And I just loved how this normal guy had this really obnoxious line about what he was going to do that night. Oh, yeah. This, so this guy was like verging towards the husky side and he's got a polo shirt so like everybody else has got like dan has said these like stringy loose t-shirts or very tight usually you can see part or all of their torso and then here is this guy almost doughy with a polo shirt 
It's, it's like, who invited this guy? <laughs> Talking about how he's going to barf on people. He probably likes metal more than half the people there, but he just looks like this absolute goober. We get to see a group of dudes who have matching trucker hats. And it's not all of, they don't all have matching trucker hats. There's like three out of the seven of them have matching trucker hats. And at one point I spent a while thinking about how did that happen? Did they all buy the same one? Did someone buy a pack? Do you think they all plan? Hey, let's wear that one trucker hat that we all have. Do you think they gave it out that day? I don't know. Why do three out of the seven people have the same trucker hat in this group of seven dudes who's shouting about Judas Priest? Something I've, I've thought a lot about in, in the past several years. All right. We're almost to my actual top five <laughs> nearing the, <laughs> the honorable mention. There's this really pretty woman. Very seems very nice. She's got like suspenders. I, a lot of suspenders in this film. And she she proclaims it's her first metal concert. And then later we cut back to her and she implores viewers not to drink and drive. And during that little clip, some nearby dudes kind of lean into the camera to try to get in the camera and she says, "Get away, please." And this is just like the one girl, one woman who did not fit in with the rest of the crowd in my mind. Okay, I was trying to remember if that (laughs) happened in this one. I guess it wouldn't really make sense for it to happen in either of the sequels or if it was just another video I watched today, but I did remember that. Get away, please. (laughs) It's a good one. Last honorable mention, there are these two girls who get like maybe 10 or 15 seconds towards the end of the film. Do they talk to Glenn Tipton? He's one of the members of Judas Priest. I don't know what his role is, but they like just talk about how much they love him. And they say, one of them says, yeah, Glenn Tipton, we want to fuck your brains out. Just like proclaiming. I don't know. I can't imagine myself in a scenario where I would proclaim to a camera that I want to fuck anyone's brains out, let alone like greasy mop top rock and roll guy. I don't know. I guess if if you're a rock star, you get the ladies. But that's one of the last people we see in this film. Yeah, somebody else say they, somebody else says they want to jump his bones. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, we're now to my top five people slash groups of people that we see. Number five is that redhead. So th- this redhead, you can barely hear the crew. It's like weird audio mixing. You mostly just hear her. You can't really hear what the crew is saying. So here's kind of like a transcription of what we hear from this woman, this redhead. Hell yeah! It's one of the best hell yeahs I've ever heard. I'm not doing justice to it. And then they say something like, what what do you do here? Party! And then what would you do if you met someone? I'd jump his bones! About one of the band members, I guess. I don't know who. And then I guess they ask about the singer, because she says, He's great, man. He sings great. And then finally you can hear the crew who's filming, and they say, Are you fucked up? And she just, without missing a beat, says half and half, which is like the best possible answer to that question. If someone ever comes up to you and says, are you drunk? Are you fucked up? Whatever. You just, you got to say half and half. It doesn't mean anything, but it's the perfect response to that question. (laughs) Means about as much as kids being born eight or nine at a time. (laughs) Uh, So that's my number five, top five people we encounter. My number four is, so there's this group of, I think they're teens. It's kind of hard to tell with any of these people, whether they're 13 or 20, as it may be. 
but this group claims they're from Reston. And by the way, Reston is like a mile from my house. I was in Reston today. My daughter goes to preschool in Reston. So like this is very close to home for me. And one of the girls, so sorry, it's a bunch of dudes and one woman, one girl, one woman. And she, she calls Reston Mayberry USA, which is a reference you could not get away with these days. Like, do you, I assume you know what Mayberry USA is a reference to. Right. North Carolina and Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith. Exactly. So it's like the boonies. So there's actually a Reston museum. If you go to Lake Ann. And it's a really fascinating town, actually. So it was a planned community by a billionaire named Robert E. Smith, hence R.E.S. Town. And in the mid-80s was when really the development was starting to occur. So it was like in the midst of its early development in the mid-80s. And to me, it's fascinating to have someone call it Mayberry USA, when to me it's just like, I don't know, a pretty intentionally designed suburbs area. Anyways, I like this group because they seem to have their heads screwed on a little bit more than most of the people we actually meet in this documentary. And this, this one young woman, she's wearing a low cut crop top and she's got this like really weird lace cardigan or something that she's wearing. I'm pretty sure that I would have had a crush on her if I'd gone to high school with her. She's like, she's very charming and charismatic, but there's one dude who's like really intent on putting his arm around her. I'm guessing they were probably boyfriend and girlfriend and he was like trying to make sure that the camera knew that he was her boyfriend. But anyways, one, one reason she's kind of cool is she's one of the few people to call out Dokken, who is the opening act. It's another metal band. And she says that that her dad likes them. And for me, as a dad, this is very inspiring. Like, I want to find things that I can pass on to my kids that they can someday be proud of that I taught them to like. And it's like a weird, obscure thing that probably there won't actually be a documentary about, but hypothetically there could be a documentary about because I encouraged them and supported them as being part of this blank, whether it's a metal band or something else i don't know i was wondering have you actually gone to this parking lot since it is so close that's a good question and the answer is no because this has since been torn down i would go there now as as like a sort of pilgrimage for this documentary but to my knowledge that this has been torn down that group also has one dude who probably gets the single best shouting of the band name Judas Priest when he says, the crew says, who are you here to see? And he says, fucking Judas Priest! And it's it's my favorite rendition of the two words Judas Priest with, I guess, the prefix of fucking. That was my number four favorite. So number three is we get this group of people who are like standing next to a van and the cameraman, the crew, is, is says, hey, wh- why don't you do air guitar? And the partiers kind of like look around at each other and none of them want to step up. And someone gestures for some dude off screen to come and do air guitar. Clearly, this is the type of guy who they're gesturing towards who would do air guitar for the camera. And this dude, he, he emerges from the crowd 
and words truly cannot describe this guy. He's one of my favorite people of all time. He's got these huge camo pants and a t-shirt that's like three or four inches above his belly button and this big chubby gut hanging out. He's holding what looks like a beaker. I don't know what it actually is. There's something in it that's probably orange juice, maybe a screwdriver, but like this bright fluorescent orangish yellowish drink. He's got a bandana tied around his neck and a hat that I would not be surprised was later used in the filming of Westworld, like this goofy flat Western hat. And he has red hair. He's got the wispiest ginger facial hair. It looks so ugly, so bad. And he does indeed consent to do air guitar. So there's this one woman in the front of the group and he uses her as the air guitar. So he picks her up and he sings a song that I'm pretty sure is I Get Around by the Beach Boys, which I got to point out is not a very guitar heavy track, but he picks her up or like he didn't really pick her up. He kind of like reaches for her as if he's going to pick her up and he sings it as such. Blom, blom, get around, go get around, which I think is I Get Around from the Beach Boys. I want to meet this dude and I want the t-shirt that he has that that's three inches above his belly button. Yeah, this was a strange interaction. All right, we're to my top two. And I got to say from the start, there was never any doubt who the top two were going to be and never any doubt what the order was going to be either. So number two is pretty close to the beginning of the, the 17 minutes. This guy introduces himself as Graham, like Graham of dope. And he's got a couple of buddies with him. And the crew asks him just the most basic question. Where are you from? And he just cannot articulate this. He starts to say that he's from the West Coast. But then someone's like, but you don't live there now. And he's like, yeah, okay, well. And then it, he eventually says, I'm on acid. That's where I am. And then it transitions to them talking about how they should legalize drugs. He says, hey, man. They should legalize drugs. That's a fact. And this dude having this opinion is probably the least surprising political viewpoint that anyone in the history of the United States of America has ever had. (laughs) And one of his buddies says, there's enough burnouts there in the U.S. to go hands across America. Do you know what hands across America is? I do. That is... I only learned about it through an episode of 30 Rock, but that's one of my favorite 80s Wikipedia articles. It happened less than a week before the filming of this documentary. Do you want to explain to us what Hands Across America is? Okay, so Hands Across America was an attempt, a very unsuccessful attempt, to form a human chain where people were going to hold hands across the entire continental United States, East Coast to West Coast. They were going to all line up at a a set time of day on this date in 1986 and hold hands coast to coast. And it did not work. I think it's largely because (laughs) of the deserts and what have you, but it just was not as organized as someone, I guess, thought it was going to be. But uh, actually in the movie... um, the one with the Mirror Twins, the Jordan Peele movie that came out recently, I think it's called Us, is about, it's about Hands Across America. 
Oh, really? Or it takes place on Hands Across America Day or something. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was five days before this was filmed. I, I looked it up because the fact that it was referenced. And, and one of the crew members says after it comes up, he says, maybe joints across America, because these are clearly druggies here. And Graham of Dope says, yeah, they should make a joint so big it goes across America and then everyone can smoke it. Which to me is now the American dream. If you were to ask me what is the American dream, it's what Graham of Dope described right here. A joint that goes, is so big it goes across America and every single person can smoke it at their will. I feel like we're getting close. Soon, soon it could happen. <laughs> That's true. I think we're at almost half of the states have decriminalized marijuana. But uh, you're going to have to muster up at least as much organization as Hands Across America had. And I, I don't know how likely that is. <laughs> All right. So then I'm to number one. Easily number one most iconic figure in this film. Do you know who it is? No, you're going you're gonna to have to tell me. He goes by a nickname, a legendary moniker. They call him Zebra Man. He's wearing a top and bottom that are both zebra print. And we cut to him. He's in the center of the frame. I, I, I like, he's, it's, it's not just zebra print, but there's like lacing going on in the upper half, like his sleeves. It's this ornate outfit that's all in ridiculous over-the-top zebra print that how could anyone ever think they would pull off? I don't know. But Zebra Man pulls it off. So the camera, someone behind the camera, the crew says, what's your philosophy on life? And Zebra Man responds, it sucks shit. A few moments later, it kind of cuts away. He, he says a couple things, but then it does this cut, and it's this long cut of him now. And he gives this monologue, and this is truly a Hall of Fame monologue. One article I read called it the Gettysburg Address of Heavy Metal. And I think Patty Chayefsky, the guy who wrote Network, would have just wept with joy at what came out of this guy's mouth, wishing that he could have written this. And I'm just going to read it to you verbatim because it's too good to be true. This is what he says. He says, heavy metal rules. All that punk shit sucks. It doesn't belong in this world. It belongs on fucking Mars, man. What the hell is punk shit? And Madonna can go to hell as far as I'm concerned. She's a dick. Seriously. And then at, point, at this point, he hits himself in the mouth with his microphone. He says, ow. Heavy metal definitely rules. Twisted Sister, Judas Priest, Dokken, Ozzy, Scorpions, they all rule. And then there's some nearby stoner girl. He kind of like leans to her and he says, yeah, she's tripping Jack Daniels. And then he kind of pivots back to his main point here. It all rules. All that shit rules. This punk shit circle of shit and the dicks and all that can all go to hell i don't care you know i don't really give a shit about that kind of punk fuck it just beautiful just english english language as a paintbrush on the tapestry of life just sheer artistry in particular that moment when he hits his mouth with the microphone might be like the signature moment of this documentary it's like i want to give a chef's kiss to this moment it both epitomizes the dude's intensity. He's just so into this rant that he actually rams the physical microphone into his mouth. But then he gives like a little giggle. Like he he's just a 
20 year old. I think I read he was 22. It's just something that I feel like you could not script. I don't know. Very moving almost to me that this dude who was giving this rant just had this thing happen to him in the middle of it. I don't know. And in particular, this this rant, he he goes on about how punk sucks. And one thing that may not be obvious to us 30 years later, 25 years later, is that this metal versus punk rift. Before I kind of dig into that, I want to give you the chance. Any reaction to Zebra Man? Did you remember this fellow? I do remember the speech that he gives. And I was wondering how controversial a take Madonna sucks is in 1986. It's weird to think about how long Madonna's career has been. That would be like saying Taylor Swift sucks now. Maybe. Maybe less than that, though, because Taylor Swift has been around a long time. She was like just the hot thing then, I guess. Maybe saying Billie Eilish sucks or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Apparently, this guy, like to this day... People who know who he is will say, Madonna's a dick. Like shout that to her as he's walking past. It's like become his his legacy. I did laugh at the, what's your philosophy on life? It sucks shit. <laughs> Just it, no hesitation. No reservation on that. That's actually kind of a millennial viewpoint. I feel like saying that life sucks shit is... People our age are, are like really depressed about the economy. Yeah, that was another that was another all six reacts moment. <laughs> but anyways, metal versus punk. So on the one hand, if you listen to a punk song and a metal song from that era, they sound similar enough that it might seem just ridiculous that these two scenes would clash and be that different. And indeed, if you listen to later interviews, apparently a lot of Zebraman's anger against punk came from a few kids he knew in high school that he beefed with who liked punk. So, like, not necessarily anything meaningful. Going back to the whole uh, Garfield argument about how much you want to project onto anything. But I really do think there is a philosophical difference between metal and punk. Metal is 100% all out. No restraint, no irony. More is more. Harder is better. Life should be a constantly heightened experience. The music, the drugs, the hair, everything about the lifestyle. No pretensions towards introspection or self-deprecation. That's what metal's about. That's what Judas Priest is about. But punk, on the other hand, is a reaction to that mindset. It's stripped down and counterculture. It's a rejection of audio decadence of metal and prog rock for a much leaner sound. And punk posited that it's cooler to be quasi-ironic and tongue-in-cheek with everything you do, making fun of other people and yourselves. I can say with confidence that absolutely nobody has their tongue-in-cheek throughout the entirety of heavy metal parking lot. And although a few might seem to be aware that there are other things in life outside of that parking lot, a lot of them are really not even at that level. They're all just all in on the moment, which on the one hand is admirable, and the other hand... It's kind of pathetic. And I don't know. I just think about that all the time. Like these dudes, the parking lot is a metaphor. It's the place that these people were in just waiting for the next thing to happen. But it's not actually the destination they were going to. But a lot of these people didn't even seem to really realize that. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little bit uh, Barrymore on heavy metal parking lot. No, I think that's good. And 
the thing is we've got a couple more films that we are we'll be talking about uh sort of as part of this series that are a similar vibe although different but i was wondering what or how did this reflect or make you think about your own concert going experience so i feel like i'm on the line between people who go to a lot of concerts and people who don't go to a lot of concerts. So I've been to like 50 or 60 rock concerts in my life. And most of those since I was, you know, 21 or 22. So in the past 10 years, that's averaging one every couple months. And most of them over the span of six or seven years, I feel like some people who live near concert venues will go to like a concert Every single weekend, they'll go to some show, and that becomes just kind of a part of their lifestyle. I'm not at that level, but I'm also not at the, at the level of people who only go like once every other year to the same three bands or whatever. And so I, I feel like I'm the fact that I'm a little bit in between gives me a little bit of both perspectives, but I have to say I've been to a lot of ska concerts, which to me has a lot of the philosophical alignment with metal and that you're just enjoying the moment and all in on the moment. And I saw a lot of people here in this documentary that I've recognized at concerts I've been to. What about you? So I think I've seen Weird Al three times, and I've been to the symphony orchestra playing video games live also three times. That's about my concert-going experience. Gotcha. So uh, not not so much, but I do have an appreciation for these films where, I mean, you can't even really call it a film. Not only medium-wise, because it's on a videotape, but it's a whole different philosophy when you're there, like, just to capture a moment. It almost takes it back to, like, the very earliest dawn of motion pictures. Interesting. When you could, like, run a camera of a train going by. Or, like, workers leaving a factory. <laughs> it just it just freezes that time. And you can always go back to it because the camera preserved it. On that note, I wanted to transition to... I really only have positive things to say about Heavy Metal Parking Lot. My, my good things here. And one of those is, I just love the grainy videotape visuals. It makes the whole thing feel like a sort of found, obscure bit of anthropological history. There's just so much 80s stuff and metal attitude going on. It just captures so much in these 17 minutes. And in general, I'm really fond of, like inordinately fond of movies that make you want to hop in and join the world and the characters especially anything that's like a hangout movie. Like, obviously I was way more fond of everybody wants some than you were, but that type of movie where I just want to be like partying with the people. And this documentary has that element. Even if I'm absolutely certain I don't want to be these people and pretty sure I don't even want to be friends with the large majority of them. I don't even want to go to the concert itself. I just want to go and explore this parking lot and see all of these personalities a little bit more. It, it's just so compelling to me. Oh, but what it did make me think of uh, in the times that I did go to a concert venue and see what I saw, 
I encountered a bunch of people that I knew. Like, a lot of my friends who were into the same stuff, they were all at the same place at the same time. And I hadn't known that was going to happen, but then, in retrospect, it made sense. And I can recognize that in the groupings covered in these three films that these guys made. That all of these are convenings and joinings. It's like a moment in time that is dedicated. We're all going to come together at this place and share an appreciation for this one thing. Right. Agreed. To the note of your recognizing people, it's just the local connection of this. Like, I feel like if it was on the West Coast or something, I wouldn't find nearly as much charm. But the fact that there were multiple places mentioned where I, I've actually been and rest and I actually grew up near and, and stuff. The fact that I was like imagining these places that I've grown up around. That's a major appeal to me. And I really like that. I think we need to take a trip to see whatever is there now. <laughs> it it kind of feels like we got to. One interesting thing about this that I, I wanted to call out, I sort of already have, this film has a sort of like mythical religious text quality to it among people who have passed the VHS around and praised it. And as I was watching 727-78, I actually was thinking a lot about this documentary and how a lot of people, and I include myself in that group, kind of revere this as this thing that is like basically nothing, just like a some dudes walking around with a camera at a place, but also so much. And like this encapsulation of a certain form of life that is worth holding up on a pedestal. I was thinking a lot about the parallels there. It's like, this is actually the thing that your selection was kind of mocking. I don't know. If a comic strip about a cat smoking a pipe can be the only thing in the universe, this might be the best evidence for that. <laughs> Another thing I liked, and I'm almost done talking about this movie at this point. I know it's been a bit, like I said, don't underestimate my ability to talk about heavy metal parking lot, but this, this movie is pretty good in the sense that it is generous. You talked about generosity. This is a generous film towards its subjects. It shies away from mocking them. It celebrates them. I like that we get the length that we do because I feel like any more than we get, it would become repetitive and start to feel like we're really mocking the characters and their types and stuff. But 15 minutes is just the right amount to get just an intense blast of them to appreciate them and all their subtleties, but also their extremities. I don't know. It's it's the right length. And although I crave more and I hear that the DVD has like two hours of bonus footage or something like that, I don't have any intent of watching that because to me, this is the canon. This is the text right here and it's the right amount. And it makes me appreciate these people for what they are even if it is in a semi-ironic, quasi-ironic tone of appreciation for the intensity with which all of these characters seem to live their lives. And I mean, it gives you an appreciation for the editing. Right. Like, if you watch two hours, that would just be probably everything they shot. Agreed. But I think they probably picked the most impactful stuff they could. That was the extent of my notes on Heavy Metal Parking Lot. 
I do want to talk for just not too long, but a bit about the parking lot extended universe. Before I get there, did you have any other thoughts you wanted to share on heavy metal parking lot? No, I think what I have to say beyond that applies to the sequels just as much. Gotcha. So given the kind of underground success of these films, these two guys, Krulik and Hain had a few more stabs at capturing this, this kind of vibe. So there are two published sequels to this in the parking lot universe, at least that I have seen. I consider it the parking lot trilogy. Um, Apparently they tried to make something called monster truck parking lot uh, just a couple years after the, the heavy metal one. And that was in 1988 and they scrapped it, but they, they held onto the footage and apparently a DVD release had a short that was some of the footage from what they were going to make monster truck parking lot. But for me, the real sequel didn't happen until 10 years later, 1996 Neil diamond parking lot. It was actually shot in the same stadium, the same parking lot. And it was shot before a Neil diamond concert. And this movie seems to me to bank heavily on the juxtaposition with heavy metal parking lot. All of these people are kind of tamer. It's a completely different demographic. These are older people and a lot of women. They're they're what we would think of as fuddy-duddies. They're almost all women in contrast to the almost all men of Heavy Metal Parking Lot. And they look like like Jessica Fletcher from Murder, She Wrote. (laughs) Yeah, they have that haircut for sure. Some of them are a little, little paunchy on the cheeks. That's okay. You know, if you get your middle age, that that's what happens. I don't blame you for that happening. It is worth noting that the large majority of these women are pretty horny for Neil. That's like a theme of the interviews is a lot of them are in love with Neil Diamond and would get with Neil on a moment's notice. I don't know how Neil, how old Neil was. They they bring that up. He's like 55 or something, but He's still pulling the ladies along with him. I will say we get a mirror moment here where the camera person says, so where are your boyfriends? And the ladies say, well, only she's got a husband. (laughs) So they're pretty upfront about it. Yeah. I didn't have nearly as many great moments. Here are just a few that I liked. There's a very sweet mom and daughter who look to me basically exactly the same. They have the same vintage 1996 haircut. The mom looks pretty young and they kind of talk to the mom for a minute. And then the crew asks the daughter what her favorite band is other than uh, Neil Diamond. And she says, Van Halen. And the way she said it made me laugh. Like uh, someone who has this whole other life other than being in the Neil Diamond parking lot. There's this older woman who says that Neil only sounds good loud. She's sitting and her husband is behind her. And to me, that was the most heavy metal moment of this parking lot expose was when this woman said, Neil only sounds good loud. You got to crank it. Exactly. Madonna's a dick. (laughs) There's this obese man who appears several times and he's got a lot of good quips. I think my favorite is when he says very sternly, We have every album except one from the Bang label. And I have no idea what he's talking about, but just this very serious dude talking about how he has every 
Neil Diamond album, except for the one from the Bang label, whatever that means. It's, it's one of my favorite <laughs> clips. There's another mom and adult daughter, and they like they spend their entire interview essentially trying to pitch to Neil and to Neil's son that they respectively are the perfect pairing, both very single and available, the perfect pairing for Neil and Neil's son. It's like a charming synergy between the parents and shared horniness for Neil Diamond. So then at this point, it cuts to people leaving the concert. So unlike Heavy Metal Parking Lot, we have people leaving the concert. And there's this one interview as as a woman, a young woman who is really adorable leaving the concert. She gets flustered when the filmmakers ask her if Neil was better than Pearl Jam. She says, I, I didn't go to Pearl Jam. And I wanted her to know that we didn't expect her to have gone to Pearl Jam and we do not hold that against her. So I've heard the name Pearl Jam. I couldn't tell you a single thing about Pearl Jam. Like, I don't know what kind of music that is. What did they play? They were kind of the right around the same as Nirvana, maybe a little bit after Nirvana. End of metal, start of grunge, kind of sloppier take on and less horny, less short everything over the top. They're kind of the more baggy slacker look and the associated sound with that, but a rock band from the nineties, but very much like a grungy rock band and not the, the showman Neil Diamond. Gotcha. Two other people that I, that I enjoyed. One was a woman who, as she walked out, she gave the concert a thumbs down too many new songs. She complained. I guess you go there for the the oldies, the classic. I think that was my favorite moment. (laughs) You know, whenever you go to a concert of somebody who's had a pretty long career, it's like largely a marketing tour for whatever the new album is. So they got to have that new stuff. But yeah, what are what are the fans actually there to hear? Right. They want to hear the greatest hits, the classics. I get it. And I was glad this woman was honest about it. I really appreciated that. The last person I admired was this this little girl who lost her first tooth mid concert. I wonder where she is these days. She's. Pretty close to our age, probably. I don't know. I wonder if she knows that her lost tooth was chronicled here. So overall, I would say Neil Diamond Parking Lot is a sweet and occasionally charming film, mini documentary. But to me, it's only a tiny fraction as compelling as Heavy Metal Parking Lot and is very dependent upon the juxtaposition with that film. It made me hope that the filmmakers have made other things and they weren't just waiting 10 entire years to make this follow-up. Right. It strives for the same capture a subculture vibe as Heavy Metal Parking Lot. But honestly, most of the people they show are just suburban moms saying some variation of, we love Neil, which is not nearly as interesting as the mid-80s metal scene. Although I like that it's the same venue. The exact same place. It adds dimension and depth to it, for sure. So the third parking lot entry in, in the trilogy is Harry Potter parking lot, made in 1999 when J.K. Rowling came to a bookstore in D.C. named Politics and Prose. I've actually been to that bookstore once. And she came in 1999, shortly after the third Harry Potter book, Prisoner of Azkaban, came out. And this whole scene is just a zoo of tweens. 
just 10 year olds, 11 year olds, nine year olds, etc. And I think an important thing, at least from my perspective and perhaps from your perspective, these people are basically the same age as me. They're mostly from the suburbs of DC, which is where I grew up. So this to me is exactly what my childhood looked like. I mean, honestly, there could very well have been classmates I had that were in this crowd. That's a great point. I was nine in 1999, so it easily could have been. So I went into this expecting it was going to also be 10 years later. I thought this would be in 2007, like at the end of the Harry Potter series. Mm. But they have it at an interesting moment in 1999 with the release of Prisoner of Azkaban, which was really when the American fandom bloomed. Right. Like, that's that's when I remember there being articles about the Harry Potter series is when the third one was going to drop. Like, America was just slightly coming down off the Pokemon high, and they were ready for ready for something new. That was right around when I started reading them. I read the first, and then I waited a bit, and I read the second and third together. So I would imagine I read the first probably sometime around 1999 when this came out. Yep, me too. I recently wrote a retrospective on my relationship with the Harry Potter book series on EarnThis.net. So this one's shorter than the others. It's only seven minutes. The Neil Diamond parking lot was 12 minutes. Heavy Metal parking lot was 17 minutes. So, you know, in seven minutes you can get some, but you can't get all that much. A couple of highlights, and I just related to basically every moment. So you could take any interaction. It would be a highlight. For me, one is this dad who is just holding the book and he's on like page four or something. And the crew says, you like these books? Are they your favorite books? And he says, well, I'm just starting the first one. And I very much felt for that dad. I feel like that's going to be me in a few years. Like I'll get sucked into some literary universe that my daughters are obsessed with. And I have to go to some event related to it. There's another guy who this one's actually a kid and he's, he's a little on the chubbier side. His little sister is with him and the crew asks him what he's into other than Harry Potter. And he says he's into yo-yo and his little sister has an anecdote about how she's never been hit with his yo-yo tricks, but some of his friends have been hit with his yo-yo. And I, I'm sorry, yo-yo dude. I hope you're living your best life right now, but I'm forever imagining you as this fuck up who can't figure out how to yo-yo, even though that's one of your top two passions. Along with Harry Potter. (laughs) You gotta start somewhere. (laughs) What struck me is that J.K. Rowling is actually there. Like, that blew my mind a little bit. I wasn't expecting her to show up and then to talk about, okay, first 500 gets signed by Joanne. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Then there's one guy who works at the bookshop who tells everybody to take two steps back on both sides. And I can... I don't know. I feel like I've known dudes who have been in similar positions where they've had to work at events and do similar things. I, I related to that guy as an adult, but I also related to all the kids from when I was a kid. I don't know. There's one kid who is really proud of the fact that he found a typographical error. He uses that phrase. He says, I found a typographical error. It said Perry, but the character's name was Percy. And I sent it in, and they sent him a shirt, apparently. And he was wearing that shirt. So 
That was another good one. We get this long cut of where the camera scrolls through the rules for getting autographs from J.K. Rowling. You can't bring in a British version. You can't get personalized signatures. I forget what all the rules were, but it just highlights like the hysteria that you had to follow these specific things to a T. Was that something that struck you, Brian? It did. I was wondering what the logic behind no British books was. And I think it must be like to prove that you bought it that day at that bookstore is part of the deal. Yeah, maybe something like that. There's this other girl, and I just have to describe her as the slightly weird, almost certainly future goth girl who talks about how she hated her cabin at summer camp until she got her hands on a Harry Potter book, and that made everything better. But I found that amusing that she talked about her cabin and how she didn't like that. To me, she looked like Moaning Myrtle. Oh, interesting. Or... Maybe just girl Harry Potter. <laughs> she had the big round glasses. Yeah. There was this doofy guy holding a Pokemon card. He just straight up holding it. I don't know why he was holding a Pokemon card. He was holding a Pokemon card and he said, I wonder what she looks like. I definitely knew people like that. Always carrying the Pokemon cards around. Another kid I liked, he claims to have read the book 13 times and memorized the first page. And he starts reciting it. But he stumbles on the word director. And then you see him looking at the text like, director, director. And I wonder where that guy is this day and, and how many of those words he still knows from the, the first page of the Harry Potter book. Yeah, they cut away from him after a little while, but I was kind of curious to see how far he could go. He, he tripped up on director. That's what it was. But maybe you're right. He could have gone further than that if he was given another chance. So for me... I would say this one is probably nearly as slight as the Neil Diamond one, but I was very fond of it because of the personal nostalgia. I wasn't around in the mid 80s. I was born two years after that documentary was made. I still admire it, but I don't have the personal connection to it the same way I do Harry Potter parking lot. And so in some ways, that one's the one that I feel the most connected to. And I was born in early 1990, so it makes it easy to know, like, look at a certain year on the calendar and tell what age I am. Right. When you start with a, a year and a zero. Something I found interesting was one of the comments on the video said that 1999 was 20 years ago, or, or 21 coming up on 22 years ago now. Mm-hmm. But they described it as seeming modern which they compared to them in 2006 looking back at the 1986 video and it seeming like the stone age is what they said just like that the difference between 1986 and 2006 on video seemed way more stark than between 1999 and 2019 right i believe that for sure i mean we talked about that a couple weeks ago when we talked about Dead Poet Society versus School of Rock and how although those were, what, 14 years apart and now it's been 17 years since then, School of Rock feels very modern compared to the distinctly 80s look of Dead Poet Society. I don't know. 
Maybe it's just the air we grew up in. Sure. And how that feels like it's extended in perpetuity to the modern age. But I agree with whoever made that comment. Oh, well, I just wanted to shout out a couple more clips on YouTube. I don't know if you can quite call them films, but videos that I think capture this same spirit of just freezing a moment in time in sort of what my brother would call a vapor wavy way. Sure. Like there's a trend, uh, at least there was, of like listening to a music track as though it's in a empty mall. Okay. And just that kind of vapor wavy feeling, I think, is captured in these videos, which are one called 2.30 a.m. at a 7-Eleven near Disney World, 1987. (laughs) I sent a couple of these your way, Dan. By any chance, did you check these out? No, I didn't get to watch any of them yet. So this one is a guy walking around just what it says on the tin. Uh, 7-Eleven late at night in Orlando, Florida with a VHS video camera. And he's talking to all the people. Oh, man. And what all the comments are about is how jarring it is that just about everybody is friendly to him and is open to talking to this camera. And people are speculating that maybe it was because back in the day, like what? It's a rando with a VHS. Who is ever going to see this? (laughs) And now 30 years later, it's on YouTube and has 8 million views or something. Wow. But then this may be a discussion for an upcoming episode. Since, of course, this is a podcast devoted to YouTube videos. (laughs) Not movies, of course. But back in... I think my brother's senior year of high school in 2015, he found a huge stack of VHSs in the dumpster behind his high school. And these were all student projects that had been made for like the marketing class that the teacher had finally thrown out after like 15 years of the class. So my brother grabbed up a big stack of these and took them home and we watched what was on them. And most of them were pretty unremarkable, but the very first one we popped in was something called Jenga Club. (laughs) And what was so interesting about it was that the tape had clearly been used multiple times by different members of a family, probably. And so, like, the things recorded would lapse in and out, and you'd see different people working on different movies... And then suddenly that would cut away and it would be somebody else working on something else. And it was this weird film collage that could only ever happen on a VHS. Like, you could never create this artifact on a DVD. Right. That's pretty interesting. It's like the medium forcing the artistry there. But part of the Jenga Club footage is a guy making a student candidate video to advertise himself to like be the treasurer of a club and what he does is he drives to this parking lot late at night of the gold's gym in burke which i think at the time was a food lion like it's a it's a gold's gym now but when the video was shot it was a food lion grocery store and we know this shopping center well and so, like, we've done, like, a shot-for-shot recreation of uh, <laughs> of the Jenga Club scenes as much as we can. Because, like, one of the teachers is still there at Robinson, and 
you know, pipe strip obsession set in. Right. But it was just captivating watching these two guys walk around the parking lot and, like, try to talk to people. Would you support me if I ran for student treasurer? And the person's just like, what? I definitely got to watch this now. Uh, It's up on YouTube. We will provide a link. The last thing I wanted to shout out is a channel on YouTube called 3GI that every year makes a short documentary about the Shrek Fest, (laughs) which is a Shrek-focused convention. I don't even know where it happens, but there are some diehard Shrek fans still getting together to celebrate the mini-layered ogre. (laughs) That's pretty great. Shrek Fest. I'll watch that one, too, for sure. There were a few other items in the extended parking lot universe but that we did not watch for this episode so i think i mentioned monster truck parking lot which they tried to film but scrapped but then was restored they also made in 2006 so 20 years after the original a heavy metal parking lot where are they now which was a look at the people who appeared in the original and i have not seen this and in many ways i do not want to see this because I like these people captured in the VHS equivalent of Carbonite, just like exactly as they were in that parking lot and no other version of them, because I know it's always going to be disappointing, but that's apparently something else that exists. And then also I read apparently in 2003 and 2004, these guys got hired to make a show called parking lot where every episode was basically a new parking lot of some sort that they would focus in on. And this show aired on something called trio. I don't know what trio is, but apparently this aired on trio, maybe a channel, I guess I would love to see this show. I assume I never will. I Googled it and couldn't find it. But if any of you have connections to the parking lot TV show that aired on trio, Give me an email and I will happily watch it and talk about it on this podcast. So that's the extent of my knowledge of the parking lot universe. These guys have made some other films that are in the weird subculture documentary genre. But as far as parking lots go, those are the ones that I'm aware of. That reminds me of something that gets said in the Harry Potter parking lot when one of the kids, one of the little boys says, so what channel is this going to be on? (laughs) And the guy with the camera says, "Uh, I don't know yet. Kind of, (laughs) I don't know, exposing the filmmakers for their own level of fame. It's like, I I think some of the people in the heavy metal parking lot, you could say like, you might be tempted to be disparaging and like, this is just a nobody at a, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 people who would never be preserved for posterity if they hadn't walked in front of this camera this night. But at the same time, these filmmakers, like, when have you heard of... We, we keep having to scroll up because we don't remember this name. Kulik. Kulik and Hain. When have you heard of those famous filmmakers? It's It's kind of a give and take where... The subject and the filmmaker are both preserving each other. Interesting, yeah. And I also found it compelling that the kid asked, what channel will it be on? 
which is just not a question a kid in 2021 would ask. We don't think about channels anymore unless it's YouTube channels. Well, true, but I think even then you might ask is like what's your what's your Twitch or your your YouTube channel? Yeah. <laughs> 1999 was kind of the cusp of the internet age, but not quite there where you could be very demeaning by asking what channel will it be on and not having an answer. So. Oh, that reminds me. The I think it was the Harry Potter looking girl said that she ordered something on Amazon.com. That's right. Yeah. Now the biggest company in the world. It's like, when was the last time anybody actually said the .com for anything? <laughs> Amazon.com. Yeah. That's good. So, Well, perhaps this has gone on longer than you expected, Brian, but I guess we both have our things that we are willing to talk quite a bit about. It's in the spirit of the topic. <laughs> so I'm ready to move to our signature section, is it good? Oh, me too. So I think we can start with your selection. Okay. 727, 1978. And I will be the guest for that one. So I will rate first. And then we will hop over to the parking lot extended universe and rate the three films ish that we discussed there. So what was your take on 727, 1978? I enjoyed this as an extended gag riffing on the idea of two things, really. One is the simplicity and dumbness of Garfield. And the second thing is how art critics will bring depth and meaning to everything, even things that shouldn't necessarily have those things. And while that's a very good gag, it's tough for that to carry feature length film especially we have a whole hour of it and I get the meaning of having it for an hour but I really felt like it kind of shifted from parody to making up this ridiculous character and really just dragging it out for the sake of dragging it out so I had a really good time with it and I found a lot to laugh and a lot to admire and but I also felt like it never elevated itself for me to all-time favorite so I'm going to give it a five, a good. What about you, Brian? Do I find perfection in many things? Some things, I would say. Some things are perfect. And this is one of them. Eight out of eight. <laughs> Torde good, their masterpiece rating. I think as a filmmaking exercise, this is really striking. Breathtaking delivery by the narrator. I don't know how he does it. I want to do this as a gauntlet, but I know it wouldn't be nearly as good. <laughs> it's like, I, I have the tools to do it. Just a green screen and a lighting kit and like a stool to sit on. But then the the writing is just so mellifluous. I would struggle to write something so flowing and at such length. It is pretty marvelous and inspiring. So that is why I was driven to create an April Fool's appropriate episode where something that is seemingly mediocre and minor can be talked about at great length. So, haha, April Fool's. <laughs> I think we can say it at this point. Hope you have enjoyed listening this long. We do have a little bit more to talk about. Moving ahead to the parking lots. That extended universe. 
Now that we have rated Brian's selection, let's start with Heavy Metal Parking Lot, 1986. Brian, is Heavy Metal Parking Lot good? So this is a case where I think our discussion has elevated it a bit in my mind. (laughs) And I will say I like this form in general. I like it a lot. The idea of just walking around somewhere with a camera. When I was in 10th grade at our high school, I brought a VHS camcorder to school and walked around for like a couple days. And one of my biggest regrets is I don't know where that tape is now. Oh, man. But if I can find it... It's a gold mine. That's right. It's, it's a great lost film. I have a lot of respect for people who preserve these things. Uh, and especially in the VHS era, it wasn't happening much. These really are valuable artifacts. And because of that, and the thorough light that you've shined on it here, and just how much these characters spoke to you, I'm going to give this a six. Very good. Oh, I'm glad. So for me, I don't even know what to articulate here because I've watched this 17-minute film so many times and I find so much in what it says and so much in what it implies about its people and what they might be behind the scenes or what they might become. It's just immensely entertaining and it brings me so much joy and I've just thought so much about it. It sounds silly, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's phenomenal. I'm giving it an 8 out of 8. And it's a, it, to me, it's a Torday good film. It is legitimately one of my favorite things to watch. I think in some ways it kind of parallels your relationship with 727-1978. Like, my only hesitation in bringing this up as a April Fool's episode is that I at some point wanted to devote a whole episode to this. And I think given that we've recorded as long as we have here, that potentially could have been justified. But I just love this. I think it captures so much. It's so compelling. You have so many unique characters. You have Zebra Man. Just so much at your fingertips. And it goes on just short enough that you never are anything other than breathless at all of the insane humanity brilliant sparkling white hot bright humanity in front of you and i just love it i adore it it's it's a masterpiece for me and it's it's in my top x films if you call it a film at any point so heavy metal parking lot eight out of eight masterpiece rating for me awesome so clearly if we consider these ratings Alongside our past corpus, it may skew our average a little bit, but I think it's earned. I think we are both passionate about the selections we've made today. Yeah, I definitely am, and and I can tell that you are too. We have a couple of other parking lots to rate. Moving on to Neil Diamond parking lot. Brian, did you have a rating for this one? So I think this one sits comfortably at like a four, a good-ish It doesn't really have a reason to exist beyond being a tribute and kind of counterpoint to the first film. I like anything where you return 10 years later. And so most of its merit for me comes from that factor that they did return to the parking lot. I'm actually a little sad that that Harry Potter thing didn't happen in the exact same place. 
right you like you you lose that unity of place yeah what about you i was actually at a three out of eight on this because i feel like it's just not even the same stratosphere but as i rewatched it to take notes for it i came to admire the many ways in which it makes fun of its its predecessor almost it, it mirrors it and there's just a lot of sweetness to it you could call heavy metal parking lot a lot of things you probably wouldn't call it sweet but there's just a lot of like nice people that i would want to that i would want to be my mom or want to be someone who would like bake me cookies or something like that in this or like moms and daughters that I'm so happy that they're close enough that they would go to a Neil Diamond concert together. So it's scratching a very different itch in the same approximate format. I'm going to bump that three out of eight to a four out of eight. To me, this is also a just barely a goodish reflection on its original. And then I think lastly, we have Harry Potter parking lot from 1999. Is Harry Potter parking lot good? I think I'm going to slot Harry Potter parking lot right in the middle with a five good boosted by our personal relevance to the material. I'm, I'm with you right there. I'm also at a five out of eight on this. I think it suffers because it's just doofy 10 year olds who don't have anything quite as inspiring as they should make a joint so big it goes across America and everyone can smoke it. I mean, maybe that is 10-year-old level logic, but for me, it's about as good as it could be in a seven-minute film where I have a lot of personal connection to it. And for that, I give it a five out of eight. It's a good way to spend seven minutes for sure. We're on the same page on that one. Whew. I don't know if these are canon, but this was a fun one. Yeah. I enjoyed talking about this stuff. I've wanted to find an excuse, so I'm glad that we finally did. How do you think this one's going to rate in terms of runtime compared to our or high school musical episode, say? <laughs> it will be comparable. And you thought this was going to be a short one. <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men go off to rye. <laughs> well, I don't know if we've had any moments in our coverage here today that made your head explode in cosmic stardust and gave you a religious experience, but I hope we did. <laughs> I hope we inspire you to think and talk at length about things that make you passionate. Even if they're just three panel strips of a cat taking a pipe. <laughs> or stoners hanging out in a parking lot in 1986. One of my favorite reviews on Letterboxd of Heavy Metal Parking Lot. By the way, Letterboxd, I've talked a lot about it. One feature of it is that you have four slots to select your four favorite films. And I don't know if this will last, but I like, I feel like the fourth slot on that is almost like an honorary thing that you'd want to shout out. It might not be your number four favorite film, but it's something you feel like you'd need to sing to the heavens. I moved heavy metal parking lot to my number four on my letterboxd top four, but the, the review of this film that I love is, I guess I watch this every week now. And I kind of feel like that's where I am with this after paying close attention to it for the past couple weeks. But anyways, yeah, stoners in a parking lot, three panel strips. This is not a pipe. Continue. <laughs>
Yes, indeed. Something that popped into my mind as we've been talking here is just another line from the Garfield review where he says, Look at John Arbuckle's wardrobe. I have duplicates. <laughs> so, after that robust coverage, Dan, what lies ahead on our horizon? So, one movie I've been wanting to pick basically since the new year started is the 1954 original Godzilla film. Released in Japan in, in, in 1954, released in the U.S. in a very butchered version in 1956 uh, with new footage and totally re-edited old footage called Godzilla King of Monsters. But I want us to view the 1954 original. You actually got me a book for Christmas about these types of movies. Kaiju, they're called. Films. And... I wanted to share with you some of the things that I learned about kaiju films in this book you gave me. And I wanted to discuss the very first Godzilla movie, which went on to create an empire of these sort of monster disaster films that are distinctly Japanese and still persist with us today. If I'm not mistaken, a new Godzilla movie is going to be coming out on HBO Max Right around the time we're recording this. Kong vs. Godzilla just dropped. I'm seeing posts from my monster friends about how they've just gone and seen today Kong vs. Godzilla. So I think it's timely. I look forward to it. And me too. And thank you for that, that Christmas present. And I think we'll have a good discussion next week. So we thank you for listening to The Goods which, starting next week, will revert to being a film podcast proper. If by chance you have been so moved by this episode that you listen to it again and again and again and again for the rest of your life and base your spirituality around it, stop. Go read or listen to something else. Or talk to a person. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.